Don't you mind him, said Puddle Glum. There are no accidents. Our guide is Aslan, and he was there when the Giant King caused the letters to be cut, and he knew already all things that would come of them, including this. Welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we are doing a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I'm Chase. And I'm Kel. And thank you for joining us. Uh, just a reminder that today we are talking about the sixth book in the series, The Silver Chair, but general spoiler warning for the whole Narnia series, as well as a heads up that we do go on tangents into other stories we enjoy. We'll do our best to give spoiler warnings along the way if there's too anything too far out there. But today, we're discussing The Silver Chair, Chapter 10, Travels Without the Sun. Travels Without the Sun. Mainly just, just one travel. It's going to well, one place. But. They, they have a daughter, not a son. So mm, yes. they have a son to take. I see. Chase, can I give you a summary? I would love that, Kel. It's a very long one today. I'll, I'll give a heads up. It is, yeah, I, I didn't shorten that. <laughs> Hey, you know what? It happens. Uh, the three shouted back at the voice that came from the dark, and it responded that he was the warden of the marches of the Underland, and that he had a hundred Earthmen at his arms or at arms with him, so they should tell him what they were there for. They replied that they were that he fell down there by accident, and the voice said, "Many fall down, but few return to the sunlit lands." Prepare to hear that phrase a lot, Chase. And now they were to be taken to the Queen of the Deep Realm. They heard a noise like a soft explosion, and a cold light entered the chamber. And they saw that the voice had not been lying about his hundred armed followers. The crowd was all sorts of people, some with horns or trunks or tails, some were dwarfs, some were taller than humans, but all they had in common was that they looked as sad as a face could be. The leader told them to get up, so uh, uh, they scrambled to their feet and held hands, and they were told to march. The cold light came from a large ball on the top of a pole that was carried at the front of the procession. They could now see they were in a natural cavern and their path sloped downward and downward and more narrow and more narrow until they came to a dark, little dark crack that they were told to pass through. Jill, having claustrophobia, was afraid of small dark places and said she couldn't go and wouldn't go in there, but they threatened her with spears and Scrub talked her into facing her fears. Uh, they crawled through flat on their face for what seemed to be a long time before a dim light showed ahead and they came into a cave that seemed too big to be a cave at all. A soft moss grew across the dimly lit place and grew in different shapes and sizes, and they passed creatures lying in it that seemed to be, you know, dragon-like or bat-like, depending on what you looked at, uh, and lying down, either dead or sleeping. Scrub asked if they grew here, but the warden said no, all were beasts who found their ways down into the chasms and caves, out of the overland, into the deep realm, and it was said that they would all wake at the end of the world. After this, they walked in silence for several miles, with not even the sound of wind or birds or breathing from the beasts, and they came to a wall uh, of rock and low archway into another cavern, about the size and shape of a cathedral. Here an enormous man lay asleep, far bigger than any of the giants, but his face was noble and beautiful, and he seemed to have a pure silver light upon him. Puddleglum asked who he was, and the warden said he was Father Time, who used to be a king in the Overland, but had since sucked down into the Deep Realm, and dreamt of all that happened in the Upper World. It was, see, it was said that he will wake at the end of the world. Again, another thing to be you know, said many times. They passed from cave into another, and then another, until Drew lost count. And they last came to a place where the warden lit their lantern again in a cave so wide and dark that they could see nothing but right in front of them. And they found water in a ship without master sail, but with many oars. They boarded the ship and set off into the blackness, and they were given food. Uh, there were flat, flabby cakes of some sort with no flavor, and they gradually fell asleep. And when they woke... 
and ate and fell asleep again several times, and it started to feel as though they had lived on that ship in the darkness. At last they saw a light and passed the ship, then several more, and then they came to a city. And the city was too dark with just a few lights revealing the activities of the endless crowds of earthmen that populated it. Their continued movement made a soft, or a sort of soft murmuring noise as the ship drew nearer and nearer, but there was no sound of bells or shouts or songs. The city was quiet and dark. They passed through endless crowds, none of which seemed interested in the strangers at all, uh, all different, but with sad, grotesque faces. They came to an arch that was lit differently from the rest, and the warden said once again, Many seek down to the underworld. And the two guards replied, and few returned to the sunlit lands, as if exchanging a passcode. Then the three discussed what to do with the visitors, because the queen was gone on her great affair, and they decided to put them in prison till her return. And then the voice of a human young man called down, telling him to bring the overworlders up to him. The warden started to protest, but called the, young, uh, the voice, Your Highness, and the voice replied that he should be obeyed. They climbed the stairs uh, up to a tapestry-covered room with a bright fire, wine, cut glass, and a handsome young man rose to greet them. He seemed both bold and kind, but there was something about his face that didn't seem quite right. He welcomed them and then exclaimed that he met them at the bridge into Edismore with his lady. Jill asked if he was the black knight who didn't speak, and then Puddleglum inferred that the lady who was with him is queen of the underworld. And then Scrum pointed out, Scrub pointed out that it was a mean thing to send them off to be eaten by giants. The Black Knight responded that if Scrub were not so young, they would have to fight to the death over such words against his lady's honor. He said she was full of utmost virtues and had experienced it firsthand, and then asked them what their errand in the deep lands was. Before Puddle Glum could stop her, Jill blurted out they were looking for the Prince Rillian of Narnia, and the knight said he had never heard such a land as Narnia or a person, and it was all fantasy that brought them here. They said they were told to find writing in the ruinous city and follow it, and they brought them here. The knight laughed as at this, and said that the writing had once been part of a longer verse. Though under earth and throneless now I be, yet while I lived, all earth was under me. It was the boast of, on the grave of an old giant king, not a message written to them, and it was foolish for them to think otherwise. This made Jill and Scrub feel very sad and disappointed that they had been taken in by accident. But Puddleglum said there are no accidents, because their guide was Aslan, who knew all things, including when that was cut and when they would find there. Or what they would find there. And then I replied, this guide of theirs must be a long liver to remember that far, to which Puddleglum said the same must be true of his lady. Of this the knight said she is of the divine race and knows neither age nor death. And it is grace that she put up with one like him with strange afflictions and even more. She had promised him a throne in the overland and her hand in marriage when he is king. He then called for wine and food so he could tell them the whole story. But that story, Chase, will come next chapter. I guess so. I mean, you gotta have a long liver for it. I... Not gonna lie. They're drinking. That, Get it? I I did not read that as like a person who lives long. I read that as like, is this some sort of like British insult to call someone a liver, like the organ, yeah. like like a lily liver but long, right? Like you're a long liver, like or like you know. I I was like, this makes no sense. And then I read it again. And was I read like, it. Oh. I was like, this this is wild. But Chase, we it turns out. The voices that were calling out to our, you know, heroes in the darkness were actually a bunch of random people who live in the underworld, the deep realm, the underland. And the underland, the uh, the home of the underminer. Nothing is beneath him. I mean, I am even more convinced that the writing is his grave now. It's uh, it all it all adds up, Kel. It all makes yeah. sense. Chase, many fall down, but few return to the sunlit lands, you know? Well, then they should probably get life alert. They should probably get life alert. They've they fallen down, they can't get up. Like, how do they, like, 
you know, get some lights, get some stairs, you know. Yeah. This is this a is solvable, a solvable problem. problem. Like the, the you don't have to be stuck down there forever, you pale, ghostly, sad people. And oh well. They seem to now, like it down there, Cal. Look at how happy they look. Yeah, that with their sad, grotesque faces and that are pale beyond paleness. Yeah, I will give like for a chapter that is mostly walking, which is usually an annoying chapter for C.S. Lewis. This one was uh, was fun. It's like he really built out a world. Yeah, it's this is like I. It's the thing, and now I'm I'm nervous. Granted, we have not read ahead. Uh, I'm nervous that we're not going to spend enough time here or that like where it's like, man, this is a really great world building thing. Are you saying that CS Lewis likes to do a lot of build up and then not actually pay it off or have any real conflict? 100%. I'm also saying and the conclusion of this book will take place over the course of one sentence and really not make us happy <laughs> that we took the journey. What I'm saying, Chase, granted, this book, I think, has been better than others that we have done, especially the voyage. Um, but it's been ten chapters, and we are silver chairless. I mean, but we're at least now in the underworld, which is a which big is step. Where the silver chair is, yeah. And I mean, we've got several more chapters here because the next chapter, I think, the queen shows up, or no? Next chapter, yeah. we're just in a castle. Then there's the queen, and then there's other stuff that I'm not going to spoil, like just yeah. look at the chapter titles. But so it seems like we'll spend at least three or four chapters here. I you think we'll be here longer than the giants. Yeah, that's good. But in this, in part of this world building, not only do we see the people that are you know all shapes and sizes, and I think he does a good job here of not just telling you all the answers. Like there's an air of mystery that he kind of lets linger there where he doesn't answer. Hey, where did you guys come from? Did, were you born here? Were you, you know, did you guys fall down here? Like it's there. Like he leaves mystery, which I appreciate with someone who is kind of infamous for exposition when it's unnecessary. Yeah. There's no aside that says, what they weren't telling Jill is that they too were Narnians that had fallen down into caves. And yeah, it, uh, it does leave it a lot more and like, it fits the dark vibe and like confusion of this whole place. Like the yeah. weird, like silent sleepiness that, uh, that they're, they're endlessly trudging through. Like Dude, it feels I like they have walked into the underworld, like in the yeah. like broader sense. and. They're just, they're dead and wandering. One of the, I, I would say this is one of people's favorite things about the Harry Potter books is they evolve as the books go on to be more like realistic, more adult, more dark as like the series goes on because the readers are theoretically growing up with Harry. And I think this one is kind of doing the same thing where it's like, this has been by far the like darkest book so far. and is dealing with difficult topics and like this one is you're in the literal darkness and it's dealing yeah. with fear uh and like the rest of the book is going to be conquering fear and doubt and 
Like, how do you assuage those things? And it's like, it's not just, oh, what a fun adventure. Here's this little side quest. Here's these guys that look goofy. It's like, no, this is, these are goofy looking people, but they're described as like sad and grotesque and like deformed and, and, you know, lifeless. Whereas it could easily be like, these are the, the, what are the, like the one footed stompers from Voyage? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, the uh, I can't think of their names. They had a weird it's name. So unimportant that I blocked my mind. Those, those silly guys. And so I appreciate it because it's like he's just saying, "Hey, here they are." Also, here's how they they traverse the caves is this light, and he's not going, "Hey, how do they have this light? What is this light?" You know, he's he's leaving mystery, which I appreciate because generally, I think mystery is it can go one of two ways where it's like, okay, you do need to explain some things, but for CS Lewis, who is an over explainer, I yeah. think this is really good. Yeah. It, uh, and I, I think you're super right about the, uh, like advancement of the story, like at least the themes that he deals with, like whether, whether his writing gets any deeper over the course we'll of the see. series is questionable, but like, like I even think about like in Don Treader, the uh the like real conflicts of that story are all like basically taking character by character in dealing with the internal like sin struggle character flaws of and like basically having a reckoning for each character along the journey. Yeah. Like, this story has dealt with like a lot of like cynicism and like hope and like kind of I mean, Jill and Eustace didn't ask to come on this journey. They just kind of got pushed off a cliff into it. And then suddenly they were having to deal with the like grief and future of a country that they don't have intense connection to. Yeah. And I think that there is an argument to be made for like Prince Rillian's story through this to be a somewhat exploration of like loss and like delusion and acceptance in like like say someone loses their mother and isn't willing to accept that they're lot she's lost and so they kind of build a whole nother world for themselves. Like, there's something interesting there with his yeah. story when we get to the end of this. But I I do like that it's kinda getting more mature at least just in the thematic sense like next book we'll deal with all sorts of weird metaphysical stuff that we'll get to talk about this is your book to deal with the crisis of faith next is the next book is the one where we deal with the end of the world and revelation and all those well you know they say when the world ends everyone here will wake up because the population of this country is sleeping and on that on that note as, so as we, you know, begin our journey into the underworld and they go further and further in, uh, as opposed to further up and further in, they're going further down and in, right? Um, and what happens is they come to a, you know, giant, like a little crack that everyone has to go through and crawl under where it's a small little tunnel. And we find out that uh, Jill has severe claustrophobia and is, you know, paralyzed in fear. 
uh, until they basically agree like, hey, we're going to send, you know, Puddle Glum first. You hold on to him. I'll be behind you. Don't worry. It'll be safe. You're good. And they crawl through as she faces her fear and everything. Uh, but we come upon, uh, like, we as we pass through, we, we see these mossy forest, like, little areas. And um, we see these beasts that are all asleep and that they look crazy and wild that apparently don't, you know, naturally live here but have fallen here. And have fallen asleep. Uh, and A pack of dragons taking a nap. Yeah. Casual. Casual. Uh, but they come up. So it's for not bringing up that Scrub turned into a dragon not one book ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, couldn't, like, uh, out of any time to reference that, this would have been it, but nope. Yeah. I, oh, does, well. I don't even think Joe knows that. Does Joe even know that? <laughs> it's not something that Eustace really likes to talk about uh, because fair, he. Fair. But <laughs> yeah, he did become a cannibal at one point. This is a, this is a girl he's like presumably trying to mack on, and so cannibalism is not a great first date topic. I mean, this has been a really long first date. Like, as I'm saying, this is technically not not that. Yeah, man, what a wild move to take someone on a trip out of the out of your universe uh, on your first date. It's it's a it's a flex. I mean, you really, shouldn't even go to a second location with someone on a first date. That's dangerous. That is uh, that can be dangerous for sure. But uh, as they make their way on their dark descented date, uh, they pass a giant bigger than giants, uh, but also more beautiful and regal and majestic, uh, who seems to be uh, you know radiating a silver light from him. And it turns out, this is Father Time. Literal Father Time. You know, you remember in uh, Magician's Nephew when Father Time was actually the old king of Narnia, not humans, the way that it's supposed to be? Because I remember Frank being the king of Narnia. Is this Frank? Is Did Frank grow into Father Time? Ooh. Man, headcanon. You're in Narnia, man. It gets you. It gets you. But... It turns out that Father Time was once a king in the Overland, and then he sunk down deep into the deep realm, and now he has fallen asleep and dreams of all the things that happen above, uh, that he will wake up at the end of the world. Now, this is one of those things where it's like an interesting aspect where, obviously, this is Chekhov's Father Time that they're actually going to use, I believe. Like, if I'm remembering things correctly for the rest of this story, you Father Time... He is a fairly large factor in it, uh, not just because of his size, but because of his impact. Um, and as we get to Prince Rillian's story and like the carving in the mountain, I'm, I believe it's from him, Father Time. I could be very wrong about that, hmm. uh, but no. like the the sleeping of all the people in the underworld, I believe, is also related to father time and to you know what it like the the mystique and magic going on in there um and it's interesting that this mythology of the end of the world has arisen um that like you know oh it you know all things will wake up at the end of the world why do they have this mythology and where does it come from yeah and again he just leaves it hanging which i appreciate yeah it is interesting because it's both like you could 
think of it in the immediate terms of like the end of their underworld world, but also like that is part of Christian eschatology and like the end of the world and the Christian vision of things is that all will be raised for final judgment and and all that fun stuff. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it it's definitely an eerie, like the, the rhythmic poetry of it kind of, it lands the, yeah. the continuing to repeat few will return to the sunlit lands when they say that whenever that they'll wake up at the end of the world, like that uh, gets repeated a few times throughout this chapter. And it really adds to like weird mystery kind of dark, I don't know, creepiness of the, of the whole space. Oh yeah. As opposed to all the other aspects of Narnia that we've seen so far in the five previous books, like, all of them have some sort of like grandeur or like fantasy excitement element. This is just like, no, this is bleak. This is like gloomy and and not ideal. Um, And, you know, that continues with their phrase of like, as they keep walking from cavern to cavern, um, they, they keep going, Hey, like this is, you know, like has anyone ever returned from here? And, you know, the warden again replies like, Hey, many have taken a ship to the pale beaches. And few return to the sunlit lands, right? Few return, few return. Uh, and on that note, they find themselves on a boat, a ship, uh, and sailing uh, through, you know, what has to be a river stick solution, which I will get to more later. Um, and in my further up and further in, until they see a city chase. Man, it's, uh, yeah. It took me a minute in reading to figure out like whether the city was like a city city or if it was just like the place they were getting to. But like this is a full bustling, like crowded, overpopulated city. Yeah. That is eerily quiet and and like just people silently, like robotically moving through it. Yeah. Like it's very dystopian. It's very dystopian, and you get the sense again that, like, even with their city, which a city means some sort of prosperity, at least you've been able to build and develop and do things, even in the midst of that, it's not right. Yeah. You get the sense that things are not as they should be, that something is going on. Yeah. And this definitely, like, inverts the usual way that literature invokes a city because typically like you get cities described like in juxtaposition with like the country and the country is like the quiet spread out like peaceful like not a lot like bustling yeah city is like the loud violent like colorful like fun like anything can happen this is a city that is as crowded as a regular city but where it's clear that like nothing happens and there is no color and there is no sound and like it might as well be a dead city. Like they might as well be nowhere, but it's, it's, uh, it's more akin to a cemetery than a city where it's just it's a crowded mess of people who are not living quote unquote, you know, like it is, it's very eerie and very wild to see. 
And, and so as they make their way into their little dock, you know, to like the warden shouts up at, uh, you know, the people who are guarding the dock and as if it was a password. And they say, many sink down in the underworld and chase hit me with the rest. In few return to the sunlit lands. And now you, right. And again, it's repeated once more and they, you know, they park their boat and they're chilling until they hear the delightful noise of a regular human man. Just a normal voice for once. That it's funny that it's like this is the most beautiful thing in the world to them. Is like, wow, just a normal human voice. Yeah, and I mean, I'd have to imagine in Narnia, like you do start to miss just what normal people sound like. Because I mean, C.S. Lewis used to do it more in other books where, like, he would give all of his. Uh, I guess he did it at the beginning of this book too. Like where the owls have like the hoo hoo hoo. Kind of like everyone's got their affectation. Like if you've got a beak, you're probably going to make words differently than, than a human mouth. But uh, I'd imagine that hearing just a normal dude (laughs) after a long time (laughs) would probably be a relief. Yeah. If you've been traveling for months and you return to like your home state or your home country and like hear your like regional accent and home language spoken for the first time in forever, like that's gotta like be a like, oh man, I'm home. And to get that here, it's gotta be just like a light in the darkness. Oh, totally. Uh, And who is that light chase? Who is calling like, Hey, what, you know, are those overworlders? Bring them up here. And they're like, um, we'd, we'd rather not. And he's like, your highness. Uh, and he's like, well, your highness should be obeyed. So, which is a great point. Uh, you know, good flex. And we learn that this person calling out is at least a highness, right? A royalty of some sort, which, you know, Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. If only aid. we were looking for one of those. If only we were looking for a lost prince that would be described as a highness. And so it is, Chase, that our unknown royalty brings our three protagonists up into his incredibly lavish chambers. Yeah, this place is nice. <laughs> like He's got the only warm light in the world. Feels like, in the midst of everything else, it's so jarring that, like, you have to go, like, and, and it makes sense knowing that it belongs to the queen of the underworld of going, like, this is so lavish and so nice when everything else is so bleak that it points toward the, like, like this is also not right. This is not yeah. good. And it makes, like, it... All, it makes the point all the more that he is going to be kind of unaware of his real situation. Yeah. He can't see that like, oh, well, you're the only person who has fire. You're the only person who has like wine and like good food and like a good time. Whereas everyone else is like in this weird robotic like dr- drudgery type situation. They have food with no flavor and no texture. And it's like he's sitting there with wine and, and cooked meals and meat and like tapestries. Like it's 
it shows like a either for him a narcissism that he deserves these things or an unawareness of how bad everything else is and that he is kind of in a sense of stupor and we will know we will come to find out obviously it's the latter um that he's not aware of anything um and but he calls them up and you know he's like oh hey what's up oh i've seen you i've seen you guys before we were on that know it we hung out that one time with my lady over over on the bridge my lady yeah he's chilling right and and it's weird because like he is and it and it makes you again go something is off because and this is a question that the these don't ever answer or don't ever ask other than in the like subtle oh you were the black knight who never spoke this is a very different personality that we're seeing why yeah. is like like if he is this bubbly and like oh what up people like come in i'll get you some food and wine and this is great and like the black knight was didn't say a word and yeah to the point where when they left puddle glum was like i don't think that armor had a person in it yeah like something is suspicious uh and he's doing a good job of letting the tension just like simmer without just going something suspicious right uh yeah. which is a cs lewis move to go and be like the kids were asking but this is something they should have been aware of like yeah in they all have different takeaways from learning <laughs> learning that this guy is i mean jill's just like wait so you're the black knight who didn't say anything and Pedalgum's like oh so that would make the lady who is with you the queen and then and of course scrub's just like you tried to get us killed and which is exactly what happened oh for sure but like i mean read the room Look where you are. You're already a prisoner. You shouldn't go start insulting a warden. Social awareness is low. And I mean, I feel like he should have learned something from his He's like, two years at sea in Narnia with the king. He's big. with this guy's dad. Yeah, true. But uh, all that to say. Uh, the the Black Knight, upon hearing this, is like, yo, if you were a couple years older, I would fight you to the death for even, like, questioning my lady's honor, because she is a... Chase, what is this word? Nosegay? I don't know. I've never heard it before. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to use it in a sentence this week, though. I, like, if this was a high-quality podcast, we probably would have looked that word up beforehand. Nah. But because I just wanted to read Nosegay. Uh, it's a fun word either way. Nasaji, I don't know, of all virtues as truth, mercy, constancy, gentleness, courage, and the rest. Um, her kindness to me alone, who can in no way reward her, would make an admirable history. Um, but you shall know and love her hereafter. Like, he's, this dude's smitten. Yeah. Or uh, wit. I mean, you can have Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> it's fine. You know. Look, Beauty and the Beast, a great movie. Uh, it's a ton of fun. But well, we, which one though? I mean, <laughs> all of them. <laughs> Give me Emma one. Watson or uh, or animated or animated. Yeah, that's that's the only two. The answer is yes, Chase. It's, I mean, sure. The music's great. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. 
we have a great time. But he says, what's your errand here in the underworld, in the deep lands? And they say, to find, like, Puddle, like Jill blurts out, to find Prince Brilliant of Narnia, which is luckily not going to come back in this moment to haunt her. Yeah, that would, if if she was talking to literally anybody else, be a death sentence. Luckily, she's talking to him. And so it's like, well. Is, she's talking to one person who's bewitched to not know anything. Yeah, the the one guy who's like, oh, you would never remember either of these two specific words by but not Narnia. Like, do you not know what book series you're in, sir? Uh, we're reading the Chronicles of Overland, right? The Chronicles of Overland. That sounds even more dystopian than like a failed young adult series. Chronicles of Overland feels like the kind of place that Kanye West would want to live. Uh, Chronicles of Overland is an Aragon ripoff. <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, he's like, really? And Narnia, those are stupid words. I don't even know what these mean. Like, ridiculous. What's his name? Billion Trillion? Like, no. <laughs> the fact that he just intentionally forgets the name immediately is, uh, I mean... It's a, it's at a, a minimum, C.S. Lewis is fully like, if you don't know who this is at this point as a reader, you're a child. You're telling me that the only royalty we've met is not Prince Trillian and the lady who has a green dress that's the color of a poisonous snake is not the giant green snake? Shocked. This is Voldemort's or- origin story. You're telling me that Remus Lupin, whose name basically means Wolfie McMoon, is this is shocking to me. I I am shocked. Uh, But great mystery writers. (laughs) But they uh, they're like, well, you know, we're here on this trek on this quest. Uh, and we were we were told to follow the message on the ruinous city, and the word said "under me." And the knight laughs, and it's like a super arrogant laugh, and like very faked and forced, which is like starting to grate on people. And he's like, "Those words don't mean anything. Uh, they just they were part of a like an ancient longer script, which in ancient times uh, was you know said, though under earth and throneless now I be, yet while I lived, all earth was under me." Right, which is a nice little poem. Um, but we see the under me part there, uh, and he's like, "Yeah, it was you know obviously some like boast of an old giant king who now like is buried." Uh, and he's like, "It's just foolishness." Which this is the kind of thing that you would be told if you were deceived. Yeah, and it's like it is good gaslighting. Like it, it okay. works um, because I don't know. This felt very much to me like. You know, when you grow up in like the church or a certain way of like thinking about things, and then somebody challenges like the factual basis of that thing for the first time. Totally. That sinking feeling in your stomach of like, oh, have I been wrong? Like, have I been deceived? And that is fully what Jill and Scrub feel at this moment. Like, they just have this disappointment, like, oh, have, have we been taken in? Like, were we wrong about those words? Yeah. And and here enters why Chase and I both think that Puddleglum 
not just because of his, you know, sarcasm and cynicism, but is one of the greatest characters in the entire series is because he is the the paragon of faith and hope without having as much reason for it as Jill and Eustace. Yeah. Although, he, to be fair, I also think that Squidward is the real hero in SpongeBob. So, I mean, I just like that character type. Sure. Take everything Chase says with a grain of salt. But of the protagonists, he is the only one who has never met Aslan. Mm. At the other two are going, man, we are we have been deceived. Aslan literally ripped the scales of a dragon off of Eustace so that he could be a little human boy again. Yeah. And still, he floated magically across a cany- like a giant canyon and like brought her to safety, right? They have these incredible experiences with Aslan. And yeah. it's Puddleglum. He who cannon breathed them across the universe. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's there are no accidents. Don't mind what he's saying. Our God is Aslan. And when he was there, when the giant king caused the letters to be cut, he already knew what things would come. And he would knew he knew when we would read this. And he knew this moment exactly. Uh, so, you know, it turns out Puddleglum, a Calvinist for sure. And like, <laughs> Having a yeah, Puddleglum is uh, a reformed king. It's why he uh, likes beer and is kind of cynical. Yeah, and like it doesn't show this, but he's got a really thick beard. Uh, <laughs> or oh, weirdly, been carrying a pipe this whole time. Yeah, and he's it's kind of obnoxious to be around, but you know, yeah, he grates on you after a while. It, and like it, honestly, a lot of things track with even the cynicism, like. <laughs> like, uh, it is what it is, you know? Look, I mean, we uh, we have both spent enough time in those circles, especially around the college bro version of this, that, uh, you know, there's a type. There's a true type. There is a type. And it's funny. And, like, obviously this is not a theology podcast, but it's like, as, like, myself, someone who leans in that direction, Still going, this is hilarious, of like yeah. a archetype and caricature. Yeah, it's it's very funny. Absolutely. Uh, but also but exactly what they need to hear in this moment. It is, and, and, and this will not be the last time that he's the one standing on faith and standing on like Aslan as the foundation of things, right? And so uh, upon saying this, the knight again haughtily laughs and, you know, irritatingly so, like, man, the guide of yours must be a long liver and not the organ, but someone who lives long, Chase. Yeah. Uh, and like Jill is irritated. And again, Puddle Glum stands up and goes, yeah, your lady must be too, if she knows these things as well. Which like, what he's not saying, because again, he's not trying to like get smitten or smote by a sword right now, is going like, you should be, like, if you're going to sit here and question Aslan, you should also be questioning why your lady knows these things. Yeah. Hey, is your uh, is your girlfriend Satan? She's she's not not Satan. She's a kind <laughs> of Satan. I mean, there's plenty of Satans in this uh, in these stories, but there's she's definitely one of them. I see Satan. There's uh, fanged Satan. Yeah. There's 
in the next one, there's going to be uh, Muslim Satan. Uh, Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, I mean, in, in Don okay. Treader, Satan was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> horse and his boy. I don't know. Maybe it was the horse. <laughs> Breathe, Satan. <laughs> it's there's there's a lot of them, you know. Uh, no, Satan was the concept of war in uh, mm, Horse and his boy. Yes, uh, and so uh, yeah, we we come upon this, and like he's you you as the audience, I think, are meant to be going like questioning things, like something is not right. We're not going to spell it out for you, but you need to be putting pieces together. Something is wrong with the prince. He's laughing too forced. His something about him, even though he like looks great, doesn't seem right. Why is this lavishness in the midst of this bleakness? Why is the queen able to know these things, but Aslan is not? When it's like, no, Aslan does know these things, and he's been right all the like along the way. Yeah. Why is you know, like you should be going? Something's wrong. Yeah, and the night really starts to pull back the curtain a lot more here because he basically says like, yeah, you're very perceptive to know that she too is a long liver. She's actually of the divine race. And he goes on to say how she has promised him a throne in the overland. And that when he takes his throne, that she will be his queen and they'll be married. And, and then calls for some food to uh, sit down and tell them the whole story. But he really kind of gives up the, I don't know, you start to see what, what's in it for the queen a little bit. Oh, yeah. You're seeing, and again, we're going to get the story next chapter, but you're seeing the story behind the story, which is like, he already has a throne and a kingdom. He's yeah. just for his father to die. like. Man. And now the queen, of who is not actually a queen, would actually have rulership in Narnia. Yeah, she's trying to take over the Overland. Over Overland. Man, so Skyland? Skyland. Ah! Conqueror of the Dayland. Uh, sorry. Uh, but we... But yeah, that's our chapter, Chase, of just, again... I really enjoyed this chapter. I wish that he knew how to end the chapters better. <laughs> yeah, he's not good at a cliffhanger. And I don't know. It, like, this was a very interesting chapter. Like, a lot yeah. happened. They learned a lot. They saw a lot. Like, Great world. This was kind of its own mini short story within, within this, the book. This chapter feels like the first time that you're introduced to Narnia. Where it's like, whoa, this is yeah. cool and different and unique and it's going but it, it but in the opposite way of going like oh man this is a world that is harsh and bleak and scary and creepy right like it's it it carries that same sense of mystique uh yeah. that and this in, is the anti-narnia the sure. anti-narnia for sure but chase let's dive further up and further in before we close out would you like to start us off sounds great uh, well, I mean, Kel, as you know, many sink down to the underworld, but few return to the sunlit lands. Uh, 
really what stood out to me in this chapter, what I was thinking about was just kind of this idea of being trapped, of losing the hope of escape and kind of, uh, I don't know, there's this, there's this trope in literature of our heroes or the people we care about being kind of in a corner, in a dungeon and in a trapped place and, the villain kind of hanging over there. Oh, no one will ever be coming to save you or you'll never escape from this place. And usually that is the setup for what is an inevitable escape. Like there's a recent episode of the star Wars TV show Andor that comes to mind. Uh, I won't spoil that because it's current. Um, Helm's Deep came to mind and just the way that that battle is overwhelming to the characters of Lord of the Rings. And then at the moment that it seems the darkest, you see Gandalf and the light come over the hillside. Uh, Kel pointed out the moment where Luke is kind of trapped with Darth Vader and then he goes down a trash chute and basically it's like giving into the darkness and it's only by the will of the force that that Leia and Han get around to save him uh, and find him hanging off the bottom of, of a building. Um, I also thought of the good place, which is basically this over and over and over again for several seasons. Great show. Highly recommend. Very fun time. Uh, but really just this idea of like being trapped, this idea of hope or the acceptance of, the acceptance of your fate and like whether you're going to choose in that dark situation to continue to hope like we see with Puddle Glum here and what we want from our characters or like you see the sleepers in this dark world or the sad people in this dark world where they have given in to the ways of the the underworld they've given into the ways of the darkness and the sadness and like this is all they know now totally yeah mine is uh mine is similar uh, and it's the theme of traveling into the underworld right this is the uh the point in a lot of tr fiction and literature where it's the descent into either the literal underworld uh or the you know metaphorical underworld right this is in greek mythology it's called katabasis uh, and this is, you'll see this in, in stories like the Odyssey or Hercules or whatever, where you have to travel into the underworld to rescue someone, to retrieve something, to meet someone, to gain information, to, you know, conquer a fear, something like that. Um, and you, it, this plays out not just, you know, in Greek mythology, but also throughout, you know, literature. And in, in this story, you have the, the underworld, the metaphorical river sticks that they cross to get to the you know city of the dead you have you know and you are facing fears and doubts and you're retrieving the lost soul from the underworld you see this in dante's inferno and they travel through hell right in the different uh, aspects trying to uh, discover it and, and retrieve uh, you know lost loved ones and you see this with sam and uh, frodo traveling through shelob's lair and mordor as a whole uh, of going like this is a place of darkness this is a place of uh, of death and gloom. The sun can't be seen, you know, and you're traveling to go destroy something. You see this in the Forbidden Forest, right? Even in the midst of daytime, the Forbidden Forest in Harry Potter is still dark. And, you know, at the end of Harry Potter, spoiler alert, though it is, you know, at this point, 
feel like you should probably know. Um, but, you know, spoiler alert for, you know, Harry Potter going his his descent into the Forbidden Forest at the very end is Harry's journey into death and then rebirth, right? Um, to pull from Mockingjay, the end of the Hunger Games trilogy, they're traveling through the tunnels beneath the capital to uh, go and face death, right? And to conquer, uh, you know, evil, right? This is a trope that you see throughout and it has different reasonings and different meanings, but it always generally plays out of going, this is a travel through darkness, literally and metaphorically, to get to somewhere where you can conquer death and bring light and bring life to something. Uh, but Chase, you know, a lot of people, maybe not a lot, some people have tuned into this podcast, but few return. Wait, hold on. People listen to this? Some, there are people who have clicked on this podcast and some of them have come back to in. Yeah, and we appreciate those people. We would love if you continue to do that and uh, and found us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you find podcasts. Do, do your thing. Find your podcast while you're there. Find your podcast wherever you get it. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review and help other people find our podcasts. And you can also connect with us on Instagram at Chronos Chronicles of Podcast, where you can see when we've posted new episodes and keep up with us there. Yeah. Few yeah. return, but we'd we'd love it if more did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Few will return indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and that it, but on that note, we'll see you next time for the story. And okay. had a yearly tradition of a soup making competition. Like yes. Tasting party and yes, you vote for the winner, which yeah, I have decided to revive. And the first one is tonight. I have made this crown of spoons. Wow. And we'll see how many people I can actually get to show up to this thing. I can't tell if it's going to be awkwardly small or awkwardly crowded. It doesn't seem like it's going to be in between them. So that crown is incredible and you should be very proud of yourself. I, I am. I wasn't sure how it was going to turn out. Now I'm very glad that I went with the like Caesar, like moral style. And, uh, I kind of want to win it, but I feel like I shouldn't win because it's my party. (laughs) 